of the city and bring it up their place. <laughs> well, uh, for the benefit of those of you who are outside of our listening uh, area, I'm uh, going to warn you, tonight is drug night. It's been drug night on the station all day. And by the way, that brings up some interesting uh, thoughts that I've had from time to time. And, and uh, one of them is that, uh, that this is probably the talkingest generation in the history of man. In other words, uh, what is this? Are you, you, <laughs> it just clips onto my nose, Jimmy. It's all right. It's not real. No, no, I take it off when George comes around, you know, don't offend him. However, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the point that I'm, t- I'm making here is that since this is drug night, uh, I um, would like to know just offhand, uh, I'm just curious, how many hours of talk about drugs has been logged in the United States in the past 10 years. I mean, it would be astronomical. Uh, Talk has never solved any problem, I'm afraid, Uh, even though we tend to believe today that talk does not only solve the problem, but it substitutes for almost anything else. (laughs) In fact, uh, I think that talk today uh, has risen to such a fantastic uh, proportions that the old biblical legend of the Tower of Babel is literally coming true. Now, I don't know whether you know much about the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not biblically, or, biblically oriented myself, but the Tower of Babel uh, has curious relevancy in this day, where millions of voices are rising and nobody's listening, but everybody's talking. Uh, there's, a, there's a steady uproar of uh, a cacophony of tongues discussing practically every conceivable problem uh, and incidentally inventing quite a few problems because uh, ultimately the longer you talk about things the more you will find to complain about and so I'm just curious I'm just curious uh, 
how much of the of the problems of our time comes from over and it's not communicating remember this I'm not against communicating because I don't think talking has much to do with communication today talk is an act that is performed almost like a football game it's a, it's a profession today there are professional panelists uh, there are professional appearers on talk shows you, you go across the dial and you'll hear you'll hear the same guys blabbing away constantly on various talk shows about any conceivable problem uh, writers are professional uh, and I'm talking about a certain type of problem oriented writer these are, these are professional blabbers and and it goes on and on and on. And I'm not, again, I don't want to be accused of being anti-intellectual because generally that's what is often said if you're against, say, an endless stream of drugs, uh, drug books or an endless stream of books about sex, an endless stream of books about uh, the city blight and one thing and another, that I am afraid today, and I, and I, I really seriously believe this, I, I, I haven't talked, I don't recall ever talking much about this on the show, but I, I'm, I'm really seriously concerned today with what I consider one of the major problems of our time. And it's not only in America. That is the substitution of symbolic... Hiero I suppose you can use the word hieroglyphics. The substitution of symbolic noises or marks for positive action in one way or another. In other words, one of the problems with much of American politics today is that a politician will give a speech about something, everyone will applaud it, but they, they never really think in terms of the speech actually being implemented into action. And so everybody's for, seg for let's say, doing away with segregation. And then the day that it happens, uh, everybody starts yelling. You know, the day... Uh, no, I was trying to say segregation, salvation. No, this is a, this is no, 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 no Freudian slips. I'm sorry, Jerry. I'm sorry if you if you that's what you're thinking. I'm I'm just simply saying that everybody claims he's for a thing, but when it actually begins to happen, then there's a lot of uproar. We see it today in the in the in the uh, current uh, administration, for example, where the administration has come out uh, year after year for economy and government. Well, everybody agrees that this is probably a good thing, but the minute that it's implemented, 500 senators rise as a single man and that their particular little thing is going to be knocked out, their little pork barrel thing home. You know, they're going to do away with the bridge that goes over the Whispering Canyon of West Virginia. So then they, then they start yelling. In other words, uh, a speech is considered an act in itself today. And that's and it better stop right there. Uh, so I'm just I'm just wondering whether or not this endless talk uh, about drugs has any value at all, except to be ultimately boring. Uh, because it is a problem that that uh, that we all know about by now. After all, I think uh, in the initial stage of discussion, it's it's good to talk about things. Uh, but today, in 1973, it would be almost impossible to find a human being in America who has not heard. At, who has not clocked personally at least 25 hours of listening to people talk about drugs, whether it's on the David Susskind show, whether it's on... Yeah, and well, a, a, ultimately, you can't blame the man for saying it goes in one ear and out the other because this is what's happening with the talkers, too. It goes in one mouth and out the other. It's just endless cacophony of talk. 
So some people are listeners, others are talkers. But damn few are doers. And this is, the, this is where we ultimately get into the problem, when you substitute a symbolic action for a real action. Now, symbolism in, in this whole problem-solving world has become a very uh, big business, too, I might add. So the button industry a few years ago was a, tremendous, was a tremendous industry because the button is a symbol. Now, that doesn't mean the symbol has any basis in reality. So some of the most hateful people I knew wore buttons that said love on them or had pictures of doves. So uh, <laughs> whether or not the symbol has much to do with the way the person is is beyond, is beyond discussion. So tonight is drug night here. Now, I, there's nothing I can say about drugs that, that will add to the general knowledge of drugs. In fact, the few people who really do know about drugs uh, are generally ignored in the talk about drugs. Now, what is the average panel? You've probably heard a dozen of them on this radio station today. What is the average panel? What does it consist of? Well, they generally get a priest. What the hell he knows about drugs is beyond me, but they get one. He may work in the slums, and he claims he knows about drugs. Well, uh, then they'll get a policeman, some police executive, who, who knows really about the problem, but what he knows about drugs per se is minimal because most MDs don't know much about drugs. You aware of that? that uh, some of my very good friends are uh, highly qualified physicians and their knowledge of drugs is not much more than yours, really, in many cases, because the drug, the, the problem of drugs, is now the problem of a specialist. <laughs> it is, just as many doctors really will frankly tell you. They don't know much about uh, neurosurgery. Why not? Well, they're a pediatrician. Uh, it's a specialized world. And so the average panel today will consist of a vociferous doctor. It'll consist of... Uh, now, he, uh, what his specialty is is usually of no consideration. Uh, he may be a specialist in dermatology, but he's got ideas on drugs, so here he is. Uh, you, you, uh, you see the priest. He's on the, on the panel. You've seen that. Uh, then there's always an ex-junkie. He appears. That's like asking an alcoholic, uh, you know, what the, what the effect of alcohol is on the bloodstream. He doesn't know. He just takes the stuff, you know. But he's there, too. And so ultimately, we get all these voices going, and most of them are not informed. And the real, the real people who should know something about drugs are rarely contacted. For example, I have an acquaintance who is a leading pharmacologist whose entire career for something like 30 years has been based on investigating the effect of barbiturates, or if you prefer barbiturates, it's often pronounced that way. But his his field is the is the effect of barbiturates on human tissue and on the human bloodstream. Do you know that he has never been asked to appear on a on a television or a radio show? Not once. <laughs> and he sits in front of his TV set roaring sometimes with, with uh, laughter at some of the stuff that's said by ex-junkies, by, uh, by the Peter Fonda type, uh, and so on up down the line. He just, he just uh, you know, and he spent for 30 years, he's been a, a leading expert in the field. Now, so I guess what we really are doing these days, we're not really talking about drugs, we're producing shows, which is a very different thing. Uh, just like in the sense, did you ever see West Side Story? Well, did West Side Story s tell you much about poverty? Was it? Did it deal with the problem of uh, of uh, juvenile gangs? No, it was a show. 
And so in the middle of the thing, a guy jumps up on the fire escape and sings, Maria, Maria, Maria. Well, he reminds me of the average speechmaker on the average David Susskind deep discussion about any given subject. So I think, I think if this doesn't seem to you to be relevant to the world of drugs, I think it's very relevant. And, and uh, that, the, that the talk, the constant hoopla of talk that goes on has become kind of funny. And you know, this is not new. Um, that the, the talk about drugs has, has gone back many, many centuries. It's not a new problem. No way. Although to most people, I suspect, uh, drugs seem to be a new problem. Generally speaking, drugs are new as a, uh, you might say, as a national preoccupation to the Western world. Uh, that the, the drug problem, if you, can, if you want to designate it that, uh, a, a, the drug psychosis, if you want to designate it, that is that. Uh, the drug escape, if you look at it that way. Uh, the drug salvation, if you refer to it as that. They're, they're called all these different things by many different people. has been a very common and persistent problem in other countries for a long time, in fact, centuries. Uh, in fact, uh, a few years ago, I had an interesting thing happen to me one night uh, down at a, this is WOR New York. A few years ago, had an interesting thing happen to me. A, uh, a an engineer from northern China, who uh, is a friend of mine, and who came to America just after World War II, and he had been in China uh, for a few years after the the uh, communist takeover there, when the communism uh, took over China. And uh, we're making no political remark here, but he he was there at the time, and he was sent to a uh, to a far northern part of China to to uh, do a job with another engineer. He was just out of university at the time, and he was sent up there, and he was astounded when he got up there to find that something that he had thought you know had heard for all his life was actually happening. He saw a whole line, a tremendous line of uh, coolies. This is a story I'm not inventing. I'm just telling a story that that he told me. And uh, he is a well-known Chinese and uh, well-respected, in fact, a uh, world-respected engineer and has been used on many United Nations jobs throughout the world, engineering jobs. And he said that that he he remembers going uh, to this camp where he was to do this job on a far remote outpost uh, in northern China. And he sees this long line of coolies. Now, he said in that time, uh, there was very little uh, mechanical uh, help available in China, and the coolie was like a beast of burden, literally. Uh, they were used the same way that horses were used, the same way that donkeys are used, and so forth. And he sees this long line of coolies carrying gigantic loads of, of uh, sand. They were making a, a dam, actually and they needed it in the concrete, and they were carrying this great big load on their back. And he said it was, it was a weird sight. These guys were moving in a long line, and they would stop and rest uh, occasionally. They, they would stop the whole line. They'd never say anything. And these guys were all, according to him, he says they were all uh, working for just one thing, and that was opium. That's, that's what they worked for, and they were given their supply of it every day, and they says they, they just labored as, as animals for uh, month after month, year after year, until ultimately they dropped. Now, 
He said he made a he made a prediction. Now this is not anti-drug or pro-drug, but he did say that uh, that the curious mindlessness that ultimately is created in a population as the result of continual uh, absorption of drugs until it becomes a tradition has to be seen to be believed. And uh, he said it's it's nothing like. Uh, uh, what the, the romanticist believes it's like. And he, he then made a prediction. He said, and this was some time ago he said this to me. I'll never forget it. He said, he says, I predict that within a few short years uh, that, the, that there will be a great importation of drugs into the Western world. He said, this, this, uh, this will happen. And he made this statement to me well before the current drug problem was as as extensive as it is. And he says there won't be anything that can be done about it. But because uh, drugs are curiously attractive to certain people. By the way, speaking of the Chinese, may I, uh, may I go neatly into a commercial for the House of Chan? Uh, <laughs> curious juxtaposition. But uh, if you're... If you're uh, if you're looking to get, uh, you know, your kicks with great Chinese food, and it is possible at the House of Chan, I would suggest you find out about the place. The food is great. They've been there for 35 years, and uh, they're at 7th Avenue and 52nd Street, which is about as convenient as you can get uh, to Midtown Manhattan. In fact, it is Midtown Manhattan, and any time you're going to the theater, it's a good place to know about, because if you tell them before you sit down that you're going to the theater, they'll make sure you get your food in time, you're served, and you're out in time to make the curtain, whatever it is you're going to go to. This is the House of Chan. The food is great. They're open seven days a week. They have a bar, and they do serve a much better than average martini, and it's at 7th Avenue and 52nd Street. House of Chan. Let's see. We also have... Oh, yes. Here's, here's one of my, my... Did you ever get the uh, the prune monkey on your back, right? All right. A word from the California Prune Advisory Board. Two cheeseburgers, well done. Hold the onion, hold the mayo, BLT, and hold we chosen. Two liverwurst on white. <clears throat> Pardon me, ma'am. I'd like to have some dessert. What do you have? Yeah, sure. We got apple, berry, cherry pie, cream puffs, cookie uh-huh. cups, rice pudding, bread pudding, vanilla, strawberry, chocolate, cheesecake, pound cake, a gooseberry surprise. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, I think I'll have some prunes. Prunes? <laughs> you want prunes? Yes. <laughs> I'd like to have a bowl of prunes. Mention prunes, and people just naturally break up. Uh, maybe they still don't know that pound for pound, prunes have more iron, niacin, and vitamin B2 than the six leading fresh fruits, and eight times the vitamin A of the most popular fresh fruit. They're even good for your complexion. It's about time people gave another thought to the California prune. the funny fruit that does so much for you. Look, I just want some prunes. Put them in a bag. I'll take them home. <laughs> I don't know what's funnier, the prune or the commercial. Uh, let's see. We have uh, prunes. Uh, we've done the House of Chan. How about, uh, how about a little quickie here for General Tire? And uh, they have briefly this to say. When Detroit chooses a new tire for their cars, they don't just jump at the first tire that rolls by. No, sir. They look for durability, dependability, and uh, a sexy thump when you kick it, and the uh, competitive prices <laughs> thrown in quickly. It says, we can learn a lesson from them. General's dual steel radial tire was the first polyester and steel radial tire delivered to Detroit for original equipment. It was the first. It's the 40,000-mile dual steel radial. 
And it's available at your local General Tire headquarters. And uh, let's see, who are we plugging today? In Greenwich, see Lou Glasso, State Line Tire, 468 West Putnam. Okay. And we have one final little dinghy. It's a public service spot. Is it pro or con drugs? Well, let's listen. New York's drug crisis is real. It affects all of us one way or another. We've got to do something. We've got to get the pusher off the street, get the junkie off the stuff. We've got to kill the monkey on our backs. Find out where to start. Call us at 868-0505. That's 212-868-0505. W-O-R, Mines, New York. Yeah, that's true, sort of. But, uh, you know, you, you what was that? W-R, Mines, New York? Or, or, or Mines? Mines, New York. I see. That's interesting. Uh, you mean we're, we're merely a slave to New York? That's a sad thought. However, uh, the, the facts of drugs, you know, see, the, there's, a, there's another problem. See, everybody wants to solve drugs. They all, all want to solve problems. But on the other hand, uh, they want to do it by very, very, uh, I suppose you might say, uh, soft-footed means. Do you know that many countries, including China, by the way, today, uh, has made the drug problem a real, a real capital offense? I mean, a real one. Uh, there's very little sympathy for for, uh, for drug addicts in many of the countries that originally, in a sense, fostered them, and uh, we're going through a period now where I guess uh, we're we're uh, we're we're caught between the devil of of uh, humaneness and the evil of the advancing drug problem, which is causing a great deal of fear in the cities all over the country, and no one quite knows what to do about it. On the one hand, there's a great clamoring to uh, make it all legal. You know, just let them have it all, and then there won't be a problem. Because this, this is an old solving of many problems. Years ago, you know, uh, it was noted in, in many societies that the minute you had any kind of a problem that dealt with illegality uh, or, uh, let's say, antisocial behavior, you merely did away with the law, and then hence it wasn't an antisocial problem. <laughs> the most interesting practitioners of that were the Nazis. But, uh, yes, they were. So, so it it it's a it's a it's not as simple a problem as as many people would lead you to believe. It's a, it's a it's an ultimate uh, thing that's going to involve a genuine overhauling of philosophies, one way or the other. Now, you know, you know, to, to give you an idea what kind of a problem it is, uh, I've uh, t- speaking of symbolic. Now, the symbolic drug talk. When I say symbolic. Uh, I, I, uh, to me, uh, uh, a, a, a panel show on drugs is a symbolic thing. It has nothing much to do with, uh, with either uh, uh, correcting drug problems or even making people alert to the problem. Because, unfortunately, talk rarely approaches the reality. This is the real problem. In other words, uh, you can read all you want about sex. Anything you read is, is not at all like the real thing. You agree with that? Okay, well, let's face that the truth, then, in other areas. That anything you read about drugs has much to do with the actual reality. Now, most people, I've found, have not had any personal, uh, real experience with the drug world. Now, I've lived in New York for some time, and I've lived right in the heart of Manhattan, uh, I've lived, uh, as a matter of fact, most of the time I've been in New York, I've lived in the village, which has had for some time, going back many, many decades, 
it's had its share of uh, of, uh, of drug addicts of one kind or another. It's it's a it's it's an area that that due to the general tolerance of the atmosphere and so on, large numbers of people who in 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 one way or another feel themselves outside the mainstream of society have drifted to stay and to live. Uh, so the drug problem is not new to the village. I've I've seen it from the time I came here, and uh, it's uh, so common that you don't even pay much attention to it really any longer. Uh, it's there. It's uh, you don't pay much attention to uh, any more attention today to a guy who's who's uh, bombed out of his skull staggering along Greenwich Avenue than uh, a few years ago you would pay to a guy who was uh, drunk. You know, walking down the street, you just say, "Well, that's he's drunk, and that's it," and you walk on. It's a very common situation. Now, many people living in many, many small communities around America probably have never seen a man or a person of any type, man, woman, child, uh, totally sculled out. Probably never seen it. And they wouldn't even know what to do with it if they saw it. And maybe this is part of the problem. They, they could very well be living with somebody who, who's, been, who's been blowing his mind for years, and they don't recognize it. They just think that... Uh, He's going through, quote, a phase. I've heard that said. Well, I've had some very personal experiences with drugs, and uh, I don't often talk about them. For example, I will frankly say tonight, since this is the drug-oriented shows that we're doing on the station, I've had three personal friends die of overdoses. Three. And that's a lot of friends. Not many of us have that many friends, actually. But I've had three uh, throughout the past ten years who have gone that way. And the one thing I noticed about all three, particularly one who was a creative person, the other two were not necessarily, but this particular guy was creative, a good director, by the way, who directed television, directed movies, and was just on his way to really going big, big time in his field. In fact, he had just, to be honest with you, had just signed a major contract with Paramount Pictures to do a major feature. Uh, the people around him were not aware that he was a drug addict, uh, curiously enough. In fact, even the people within his company, he formed an intimate company that, uh, that was very successful. And the people around him, all of whom were fairly hip, uh, you know, as hip as anybody is today, were not aware that this guy had been for at least five years on really the hard stuff. I mean, the ultimate hard stuff. And uh, due to the fact he had a fairly good income, he was able to, to keep himself well supplied, and uh, everything seemed to be going fine. Well, one night, I, I, I had suspected for some time that he was on drugs. And uh, he never talked much about it, except, oddly enough, he was one of these people who continually... Uh, vacillated between being very anti-drug in his talk to being extremely tolerant in his talk and maintaining that the drugs were no more harmful than martinis. He, this is a standard cliche that people continually have. Uh, and it, it suffices, I suppose, if you don't know anything about drugs, nor martinis, uh, you, can, you can accept this. But he, he was one of those guys. I mean, he, he was uh, very vociferous, highly articulate, and curiously enough, one of his major contributions to the film world, and this was an odd uh, coincidence, one of his major co uh, contributions to the film world was a, was a film that got tremendous critical acclaim. As a matter of fact, it uh, was even nominated 
for an Academy Award, the specific work that he did on this film, that was a violently anti-drug film. Now, that's the kind of irony that you constantly run into in this, uh, in this curious world. As a matter of fact, this, this phenomenon has been, have been, has been noticed in many, many other areas. You'll find uh, people who are, who are violently against, we'll say, uh, a sin. They may be violently against sin. They're the people often that are drawn most to it. And they're really against a flaw in their own character. This is why they, they, they make a great issue of, of publicly being against sin. Well, this guy was publicly on record against drugs. In fact, he, he, was, he was being used. This is the irony of it all, due to the fact that he was so successful in this one film with his work. He was being used by many of the agencies which employ filmmakers to make films, anti-drug public service films. He was actually making these things. That's the irony of it all. Well, one night I was over in a restaurant here in New York, and uh, I was having a meeting with him. In fact, we were talking about working on a film together. If you're curious how old this guy was at the time, he was 28. So we were about to have uh, a meeting. Now, I hadn't seen him in several months. He'd gone out to Hollywood after having been in this area for some time. And we went out to... Uh, I went to this restaurant, which is in Midtown. And uh, we were to meet at 7 o'clock. And I arrived about 7. I sat down, and uh, I, I had a cup of coffee or something, and, and I waited and waited and waited. And there were a couple of other people with me. And uh, time went by, and it's now 7.30, quarter to 8, and finally it's about 8 o'clock, and the people are getting a little restless, you know. We ordered dinner by that time, figured something happened. Uh, but I had my ideas. I didn't say much. And uh, sure enough, about 8.15, after our meals had arrived, he came in and sat down and just sat very quietly, didn't say much, and uh, seemed to be very preoccupied. Well, immediately, as soon as he sat down, I knew. I knew right away. And my friends luckily didn't. They they just said, oh, uh, how are you, you know, and, and uh, finally he... He, say, he stayed just a short time and left. And one of them said, gee, uh, you know, it's, it's strange. He was in an odd mood. Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, you know, he's probably got a lot on his mind. Well, I knew at that point. Well, he left New York and went back to the coast. And uh, it was one of those fantastic things that happen in your life occasionally. I flew out to the coast about two weeks later. I flew out on my own business. Matter of fact, I was I was a guest on the Steve Allen show. That's why I really flew out there. And I had notified him. I wrote him a note when I got the date on the Steve Allen show that I was going to be out on the coast and that I would call from the Los Angeles airport when I arrived in town. So uh, I was going to get there a little early, and that night I was to be on the show, so I was going to have dinner with him. So I... I, uh, I Flew out, and I arrived in, in L.A. about, oh, 3, 3.30, something like that in the afternoon. And I immediately went to a phone booth. I wasn't expected on the Allen show till around 7 or 8 o'clock that night. So I had these hours to kill, and I was going to have dinner with this guy. So I rushed to uh, a phone booth, and I, and I dialed his, his number, which was his company number. And a voice answered, and I asked for him. I said, is so-and-so there? It was a pregnant pause. And he said, who is this? And I told him. Well, the guy immediately knew that he and I had a mutual film 
project that we were working on. As a matter of fact, he was planning the original stages of doing a Paramount film, the filming of In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, if you're curious what we were doing. So we had been working on the original, the first tentative steps of making out a, working on a screenplay for it. And so he says, uh, oh, when he knew who it was, he said, uh, you mean you, you, you haven't heard? And I said, heard what? He said, well, he's dead. I said, he's dead. I mean, this guy's, at that point, he was about, you know, 30. He just was about 30, roughly. I said, he's dead. I, I couldn't, you know, it was astounding because I had just seen him. And he said, yeah. And, of course, I instantly uh, had a strong premonition of what it was. And uh, I said, uh, is it what I think it was? And a long pause. And he said, how did you know? Because the word to the press was a very different one. They had given the word out to the press, which I had not heard, incidentally, of the death of this person. And they ascribed it to a, a massive heart, uh, uh, a heart condition, which I knew he never had. And uh, he says, how did you know? I said, well, I just suspected for a long time. And he says, really? And I said, yes, I did. And so we had dinner. I had dinner with this guy who happened to have been his partner, and we sat around for about two hours talking about what had happened. And actually, it was quite simple. Uh, one morning, uh, his partner, uh, just about two days before I called, possibly eight or nine days after I had uh, talked to my friend, uh, what, went into the office. They shared an office. They had, uh, they had this little office building where they were starting their film industry, their little film company. It was doing quite well. And uh, he came into the office one morning, and uh, he went about his business, and he began to notice that, uh, that his partner did not call in. He didn't see him. So he walked down the hall to his partner's office. In other words, my friend's office. He had a little office. So he walked into the guy's office, and at first he didn't think he was there. He just opened the door, and there was nothing. And then he just walked in. He had a, he had a strange feeling, and sure enough, he found this guy lying behind his desk. And at first he thought maybe he had just passed out. He couldn't believe, you know, what happened. So he rushed over, and he was dead, of course. And uh, he was astounded. And at that point they discovered, they found the paraphernalia and the whole bit. They discovered that he had gotten an overdose. He had taken an overdose of this stuff. And that was the end of the ball game. He died in, in seconds. He was gone. Well... <laughs> When you have things like this happen to you, you begin to, to suspect that a lot of the romantic talk about drugs uh, is uh, just that. It's romantic talk. But I have never met a drug addict, and I've known a few in my time, who ultimately uh, didn't rue the day and, and, uh, and, and curse the fates that brought him into, into uh, you say, I suppose you might say, intimacy with this stuff. Now, I, I, I uh, and I'm making no value judgment here. I'm not going to have thousands of people write in and say, uh, what do you know about it? What a, uh, I, I, I can only say that I've been around it for some time. I've been around it, actually, almost from the time I was a kid. At one time, I worked uh, briefly uh, as a musician, and I worked, uh, I worked with hillbilly groups, uh, now called country-western groups. And uh, even at that time, there was already a heavy strain 
of drug addiction running through a lot of the people I knew. I, I'll never forget the first guy I saw who died of an overdose. Uh, it was at a party. And the party was a party that was being given by a famous band leader uh, in a hotel room in Cincinnati. And uh, his lead trumpet was lying on the couch. Everybody just thought he was lying down because they had been on one-night stands across the country and resting or something. And the party went on for hours, and suddenly somebody said, uh, what happened to X? Hey, come on. They ran over, and they tried to wake him up, and somebody suddenly realized that he was dead. And at the age of 23, he was gone. Well, there I was, astounded. You know, I happened to be at the party. And so from that time on, my, my feeling about drugs has been very mixed. Uh, the romantic, the sad romantics who romanticize drugs, uh, I think, are very akin to the sad people who romanticize booze. Now, I'm not anti, uh, I'm not anti uh, a martini or two before dinner, but I'll tell you this. Some writers romanticize drinking to the point where ultimately it literally destroys their lives. And there are many of them in, in the history of writing. Somehow it's considered to be really hip as a writer to start drinking like crazy. And uh, ultimately, you destroy your world and everything around you with this stuff. So I don't think romanticizing any potentially lethal ailment uh, does anything except uh, provide a kind of romantic sop for those who don't know much about it. Now, here's a typical example uh, of romanticizing the drug world, which you find in many pieces of music today. Do you have it set up in there? Now, this is an example of the kind of romantic pap that you find floating around. Just just listen carefully. This is a, a piece of drug-oriented music. Ironically enough, this piece of music was used as background to a scene that my friend photographed for the movies. Ironically. Now, that, that, uh, that, that, of course, is, uh, you know, the whole uh, togetherness bit, which, by the way, is a, is, a, is a real illusion and a myth that a person who is involved with a real habit 
is about as alone as a man can get. Uh, this side of being actually dead, from the ones I've known uh, very, very well. Uh, so again, I say that romanticism often is covering over the reality of a thing. It, it, it makes it sound like we're all together. You know, I get high with my friends, and we all sit around, and we're all part of this thing. No way, friends. That's like saying, the day I got tuberculosis, I learned about uh, how groovy it was to be in a sanitarium with a lot of other people with tuberculosis, and now we're together. No way. However, uh, here's another example. This is, this is an interesting example of uh, correlating... Uh, drugs and uh, what could be called the artistic impulse, which is the saddest of all rationalizations. Uh, this is another type. This is Christopherson. He on the sidewalk in his jacket and his jeans Wearing yesterday's misfortunes like a smile This is, by the way, a better piece of music Once than the first one by far. Full of money, love, and dreams I hate to say it, but Christopherson was a finer artist. <laughs> and he keeps right on a change, for the better or the worse. Searching for a shrine he's never found. Never knowing if believing is a blessing or a curse. The river going up was worth the coming down. He's a poet, he's a picker, he's a prophet, he's a pusher. He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when he's stoned. He's a walking contradiction, part of truth and part of fiction. Taking ever wrong direction on his lonely way back home. He has tasted good and evil bedrooms and your bars and he's trading in tomorrow for today running from his devil's lord reaching for the stars losing all his love along the way but if this world keeps right on turning for the better or the worse and all he ever gets is older and around from the rocking of the cradle to the rowing of the hearse, the going up was worth coming down. He's a poet, he's a picker, he's a prophet, he's a pusher. He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when it's stone. He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. Taking out the wrong direction on his lonely way back home. There's a lot of wrong directions on that lonely way back home. Well, there's not much you can say. Ultimately, you make your choice. And uh, the great uh, cloud of words rises. Uh, over the electronic and the printed world of today. <laughs> and so I suspect that most people, whenever they turn on their TV set and says, oh, now another important panel discussion of America's number one problem, drugs, quickly switch to the 323rd rerun of an I Love Lucy sequence. And uh, they have about as much meaning in common 
I'm not making a value judgment either on Lucy or panel discussions. But they're both in their own wonderful way, sad bits of curiously unconscious humor. So, would you please? That ends drug night on the station, or at least on my show. Christopherson sings really good. <laughs>